Today is Wednesday, April the 12th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Samsung workers made a major error by using chat GPT. Samsung meeting notes and new source code are now in the wild after being leaked in ChatGPT. Samsung workers have unwittingly leaked top-secret data while using ChatGPT to help them with tasks. The company allowed engineers at its semiconductor arm to use the AI writer to help fix problems with their source code. But in doing so, the workers inputted confidential data such as the source code itself, for a new program, internal meeting notes, data relating to their hardware. The upshot is that in just under a month, there were three recorded incidences of employees leaking sensitive information via ChatGPT. Since ChatGPT retains user input data to further train itself, these trade secrets from Samsung are now effectively in the hands of OpenAI, the company behind the AI service. In response, Samsung Semiconductor is now developing its own in-house AI for internal use by employees, but they can only use prompts that are limited to 1K bytes in size. In one of the aforementioned cases, an employee asked ChatGPT to optimize test sequences for identifying faults in chips, which is confidential. However, making this process as efficient as possible has the potential to save chip firms considerable time in testing and verifying processors, leading to reductions in cost too. In another case, an employee used ChatGPT to convert meeting notes into a presentation, the contents of which were obviously not something Samsung would like external third parties to have known. Samsung Electronics sent out a warning to its workers on the potential dangers of leaking confidential information in the wake of the incidences, saying that such data is impossible to retrieve as it is now stored on the servers belonging to OpenAI. In the semiconductor industry, where competition is fierce, any sort of data leak could spell disaster for the company in question. It doesn't seem as if Samsung has any recourse to request the retrieval or deletion of the sensitive data OpenAI now holds. Some have argued that this very fact makes ChatGPT non-compliant with the European Union's GDPR, as this is one of the core tenets of the law governing how companies collect and use data. It is also one of the reasons why Italy has now banned the use of ChatGPT nationwide. Disney laid off its entire dedicated metaverse team. The company's 50-person next-generation storytelling and consumer experiences unit is among the first to meet the chopping block amid a wider slew of cuts. 
Disney has laid off its entire dedicated metaverse team. The company seems to be no longer pursuing next-generation storytelling through new digital platforms. As Disney creates worlds, so too can it destroys them. The happiest company place on earth no longer includes a dedicated metaverse division. Disney has cut its entire next-generation storytelling and consumer experiences unit. It's an early glimpse into how the company intends to focus its planned layoffs of thousands of employees. Disney announced that it would slash 7,000 staff, which is approximately 3% of its total workforce, during a February investor call amid a rather grim 2023 first quarter earnings report. The metaverse workers were the first to go. The storytelling and experiences team, comprised of about 50 staff, was responsible for grappling with metaverse strategy. The next-gen storytelling unit was reportedly supposed to come up with the ways to incorporate Disney characters' narratives and other aspects of the company's vast compendium of intellectual property into new types of interactive digital experiences. Specifically, the company was exploring new applications in fantasy sports, theme park attractions, and other consumer experiences. Though what exactly the division actually delivered and developed in its brief existence is unclear. Disney first put together its Metaverse unit just last year, appointing longtime company exec Mike White to lead the charge. Notably, following the department's dissolution, White will remain with Disney despite all of his underlings being sacked. Disney's decision to scrap its metaverse might be a good call after all, considering it still remains how exactly a metaverse differs from any other virtual reality of life-simulated video game. Even Meta, the company that's almost certainly spent more on metaverse machinations than any other, has recently decided to shift towards greener pastures. Earlier this month, Meta announced its new priority will be artificial intelligence, even if Meta can't make the metaverse works with a $1 billion per month investment, Disney's patented Imagineering probably wasn't going to either. But it seems Disney's also working to get in on the recent AI obsession. Earlier this month at South by Southwest, the company showcased its goals of deploying emotionally intelligent AI robots that can emotionally connect with guests at its theme parks. Big tech struggle to lay off workers in Europe. Will tech layoffs hit Europe in the same way as in the United States? There's bad and good news here. The bad news is tech layoffs are not just about big tech companies. They are affecting all tech companies from the largest ones to startups. This is already happening everywhere, including in Europe. European and UK labor laws don't allow for those big layoffs or at least they don't allow them without some prior procedure in order to protect workers' rights. If Twitter is really planning to lay off more than half of its total workforce in the United Kingdom, it might go through something already experienced by P&O ferries when the company announced laying off 800 people. That might include a hearing in front of the House of Commons and employment judges getting involved. Most European countries have similar rules to protect workers' rights as well. In other words, 
even if a tech company really needs structural adjustments, it has to follow the rules of law. So yes, tech layoffs are already hitting the European job market, but the good news is that the European employees are in much better position compared to their colleagues in the United States that could lose their jobs without any form of protection as guaranteed by the UK and UE laws. After announcing the largest rounds of layoffs in their history, U.S. big tech companies are now learning how difficult it is to reduce headcount in Europe. In France and Germany, Google is currently in negotiation on workforce reduction with works councils, company-specific groups whose elected employee representatives negotiate with management. In the United States, companies can announce widespread job cuts and let go of hundreds if not thousands of workers within months. Meanwhile, in Europe, mass layoffs among tech companies have stalled because of labor protections that make it virtually impossible to dismiss people in some countries without prior consultations with employee interest groups. This has left thousands of tech workers in limbo, unsure about whether they'll be affected by negotiations that can drag on indefinitely. In France, Google's parent Alphabet is currently in talks to reduce headcount through voluntary departures, offering severance packages that it hopes are generous enough to get workers to leave. Amazon has tried to get some senior managers there to resign by dangling as much as one year's pay and has granted leave to departing employees so their shares can vest and be paid out as bonuses. Both in France and Germany, where labor laws are among the strongest in the European Union, Google is currently in negotiations with the Works Council, company-specific groups whose elected employees' representatives negotiate with management about workforce issues. By law, companies are required to bargain with these councils before implementing layoffs, a sometimes lengthy process that includes information gathering, negotiations, and the possibility of recourse. Because of these requirements, a person said, Google branches in Germany and France will be of some of the last locations to be affected by the cuts, if even at all. Apple joins Amazon, Google, and Microsoft in tech industry layoffs. The layoffs are a drop in the bucket compared to cuts at competitors. Apple, which has thus far avoided the sweeping layoffs that have taken place at rival companies like Microsoft and Google, is eliminating some roles after all, according to a report in Bloomberg. The number of heads eliminated is believed to be relatively small, and they are all within the company's corporate retail teams, with a focus on workers who are responsible for the construction and upkeep of Apple's retail locations and other physical facilities. In a note to employees, the company said the move was actually intended to improve store upkeep. Additionally, Apple told the affected employees that they can reapply for other roles within the company. Those who aren't accepted for new roles will receive four months of severance. Apple has been enacting changes to cut costs since last year, but until now it has avoided layoffs, even as big tech peers have slashed thousands of jobs, though Apple has ended several relationships with contractors. 
While it is unusual for Apple to lay employees off, the numbers here don't compare to those elsewhere in the industry. Amazon has laid off 27,000, Meta has laid off 21,000, and Microsoft has laid off 10,000. Google has laid off 10,000 workers in recent months for comparison. Overall, Apple's global headcount has grown by tens of thousands over the past five years. The last major set of layoffs was when the company laid off around 200 people who were working on Project Titan, its troubled autonomous vehicle project. Apple has frustrated employees in other ways, though. Its leadership has aggressively cracked down on remote work, according to many reports. CEO Tim Cook has described in-office collaboration as a cornerstone of Apple's work culture, but many employees resisted returning to the office as the pandemic lockdowns of 2021 and 2021 has waned. Since then, Apple has tracked employee badge records and issued escalating warnings to employees who don't come back into the office the mandated three days per week. What's new on the Apple front? Apple's 40% plunge in PC shipments is steepest among major computer makers. Apple's personal computer shipments declined by 40.5% in the first quarter, marking a tough start to the year for PC makers still grappling with a glut of unsold inventory. Shipments by all PC makers combined slumped 29% to 56.9 million units and fell below the levels of early 2019 as the demand surge was driven by COVID-19. Lenovo Group Limited and Dell Technologies Inc. registered drops of more than 30%, while HP Inc. was down 24.2%. Asus Computer rounding out the top five with a 30.3% fall. Apple is the biggest loser as weak demand crashes global PC shipments. But things could get better at the end of 2023. Research giant IDC that has produced a bleak summary of the industry saw the first quarter's global shipments crater and the biggest victim was the world's largest company, Apple. The International Data Corporation's, that's IDC, latest report on the PC market reiterates the problem that the industry has been facing for around a year now. Weak demand, excess inventory, and a worsening macroeconomic climate. The first quarter saw shipments of traditional PCs crash to 56.9 million, marking a 29% decline compared to the 80.2 million units shipped in the same period last year. IDC notes that the figures illustrate how shipments have, at least for now, returned to levels experienced before the pandemic-induced boom. Shipment volume in the first quarter was noticeably lower than the 59.2 million units shipped in the first quarter of 2019 and the 60.6 million in the first quarter of 2018. While all five of the top five PC manufacturers saw declines in year-on-year growth in the first quarter of 2023, it was Apple that took the biggest hit. Cupertino's shipments fell by a massive 40.5% during the quarter. Apple's misfortune doesn't come as too much of a surprise, though. The refreshed MacBook Pros with M2 Pro and M2 Max chips arrived back in January to rave reviews. They won some categories in recent Best Laptops features, 
but the company reportedly froze production of its M2 series in January and February due to lower-than-anticipated MacBook demand. Apple is said to have resumed production in March, but at a 50% slower rate compared to before the shutdown. Lenovo remains a top company in terms of total shipments in the first quarter, 12.7 million. It's followed by HP, Dell, Apple, and Asus. HP saw the lowest yearly decline in shipments, falling only 24.2%. The report comes just days after Samsung, the world's largest manufacturer of DRAM and NAND chips, said it would be scaling back chip production to what it calls a meaningful level after reporting its lowest quarterly profits since 2009 financial crisis. There was some good news in the report. IDC writes that the slowing demands are giving manufacturers time to make changes as many factories begin to explore production options outside of China. Apple started manufacturing some iPhone 13 handsets in India last April as it looks to lessen its reliance on the East Asian nation. The other bright spot is that IDC believes the industry will see return to growth towards the end of the year as the global economy is predicted to improve. It is also expected that more people and businesses will upgrade to Windows 11. By 2024, an aging installed base will start coming up for refresh. If the economy is trending upwards by then, IDC expects significant market upside as consumers look to refresh, school seeks to replace worn-down Chromebooks, and businesses move to Windows 11. If recession in key markets drag on to next year, recovery could be a slog. What is nearby share on Android? If you have used AirDrop service on Apple, you must have a slight idea about nearby share. But if you aren't familiar with that, nearby share is a service to send and receive files between Android devices located at proximity. The send and receiver should be in the same room. It is currently in beta in the United States and a few other countries. For a long time, Android users have envied Apple's AirDrop, which allows iOS users to quickly and seamlessly share files between Apple devices. So when Google introduced Nearby Share in 2020, Android users everywhere rejoiced because they finally had a simple way to transfer files between devices without having to attach them to an email. But sending a photo or video to your PC shouldn't be a hassle either, even with an ecosystem gap in the way. Thankfully, Google revealed at CES 2022 it plans to launch Nearby Share in beta for Windows at some point in the future, and that day has finally arrived. Google announced in a blog post that it's now easier to move images, videos, and other content between your Android phone and Windows PC with a new Nearby Share beta for Windows app. Similar to Apple's AirDrop, the app allows Android devices and Windows PCs to quickly share files between each other without needing to resort to some of the top cloud storage apps like Google Drive. The app is available to download from the Android website and it's compatible with PCs running the 64-bit version of Windows 10 and up, so long as they're not powered by ARM processors. Additionally, devices should be within 16 feet 
of each other for the transfer to succeed. Nearby Share Beta or Windows works similarly to its Android counterpart, just with a Windows twist. Simply drag or drop a file into the app or right-click on a file and select the Nearby Share option. In the context menu after that, Nearby devices will show up in the recipient list. The app only works for devices that have Nearby Share turned on, are close together and unlocked, and are logged into your Google account. Once these conditions are met, whatever you're sharing is sent directly to the other device via this transfer method. As is customary, anyone else must accept each share from your device. However, even if you can always decline, the thought of strangers bombarding you with random shares is the last thing you'll want with this experience. Fortunately, you can set your preferred visibility for nearby share on Windows to different levels of contacts just like you can for Android app. You can do this by going to the settings menu and selecting the device visibility section from which you can select everyone, contacts, your devices, or no one. Nearby share beta is only available in the United States and a handful of other countries for the time being. Unfortunately, some countries are on an exclusion list. Old hard disk drives seem more durable and resilient than new hard disk drives. An analysis of 2007 damage or defective hard disk drives has led a data recovery firm to conclude that, in general, old drives seem more durable and resilient than new drives. The statement comes from a Los Angeles headquartered hard disk drive, solid state drives, and RAID data recovery firm aptly named Secure Data Recovery that has been in business since 2007 and claims to have resolved more than 100,000 cases. It studied the hard disk drives it received in 2022, and most of those drives were 40 gigabytes to 10 terabytes, according to a blog post by Secure Data Recovery. Secure Data Recovery's post broke down the hard disk drives it received by engineer-verified power-on hours or the total amount of time the drive was functional, starting from when its owner began using it and ending when the device arrived at Secure Data Recovery. The firm also determined the drive's current pending sector count, depicting the number of damaged or unusable sectors the hard drive developed during routine read and write operations. The company's data doesn't include hard disk drives that endured non-predictable failure or damage by unexpected events, such as electrical surges, malware, natural disasters, and accidental mishandling. Among the sample, 936 drives are from Western Digital, 559 come from Seagate, 211 are Hitachi brand, 151 are Toshiba's, 123 are Samsung's, and there are 27 Mac store drives. Notably, 74.5% of the hard disk drives came from either Western Digital or Seagate, which Secure Data Recovery noted accounted for 80% of hard drive shipments in 2021. The average time before failure among the sample size was 2 years and 10 months, and the 2007 defective hard disk drives 
had an average of 1,548 bad sectors, while 1,548 bad sectors out of hundreds of millions or even billions of disk subdivisions might seem minuscule, the rate of development often increases and the risk of data corruption multiplies, thus the importance of data backup. If you've been feeling like hard disk drives aren't built to last as long as they used to be, you're not alone. Secure Data Recovery's blog suggested a relationship between when a hard disk drive was made and how long it lasted before failing. They found that five most durable and resilient hard drives from each manufacturer were made from before 2015. On the other hand, most of the least durable and resilient hard drives from each manufacturer were made after 2015. Unfortunately, Secure Data's recovery didn't specify what it meant by most, but it did point to hard disk drive manufacturers pushing the performance envelope as a reason. Why hard disk drive's reliability may have dipped with more recent products. This includes size limits that cut allowance between moving parts, appearing to affect mechanical damage and wear resistance. Secure Data Recovery also blamed a three-letter acronym that has nearly become a four-letter word to storage users in 2020, SMR. The revelation that various brands, including Western Digital, Seagate, and Toshiba, clandestinely sold devices with shingle magnetic recording disks instead of CMR or conventional magnetic recording disk. This shocked consumers, and Western Digital even ended up paying $2.7 million in a class action lawsuit. While users were primarily upset that drives leveraging SMR offered slower random write speeds than drives using CMR, Secure Data Recovery also believes that SMR impacts hard disk drive reliability as the disk place components under more stress. So that begs the question, what is the difference between CMR and SMR hard drives? Conventional magnetic recording that is CMR drives writes data on a hard disk in tracks that do not overlap. Shingled magnetic recording, which is SMR, allows tracks to overlap, which results in higher data densities but slower read and write times compared to CMR drives. So in other words, they were just trying to pack more in a small amount of space and everything ran slower. So to the engineers, it's working fine. Just go back to CMR and leave what's fine that's not broken. Let's leave it alone. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we set aside just a few minutes to talk about the workplace and some of the things that you might be experiencing in regards to IT and the workplace. The wonderful brain of Albert Einstein once came up with something. He said, Everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing it is stupid. 
And it kind of has a certain level of bearing on the next topic, and that is neurodivergence. This is kind of a, a phrase that's that's popped up into the modern-day lexicon in recent years. We've seen this in TV and the movies and things like that, and it talks about people who really approach problem-solving differently. They excel in certain areas. They suffer in other areas. And all this is is just a matter of Everybody thinks a little bit differently than everybody else. And sometimes we do have people that are off the charts in one direction or another. We have things like autism spectrum disorder. We have things like uh, ADD and ADHD. And these different people frequently wind up in information technology because they bring so much into information technology because they are nerds. That, that's the simple word. I love that word. I embrace that word so much. I'm a nerd. Uh, and, you know, this isn't a 12-step program. Uh, but it, it, look, <clears throat> neurodivergent workers look at things differently. They they have their own unique perspective. And what you might be thinking of as, as this is the path we have to go, they're going to find ways to duck around. They're going to find ways that say, you know, it's completely out of the box thinking. It's, it, why do we have to even stay in the box? And they come up with better problem-solving Items They may not be able to articulate them well immediately. They may not even be able to look you in the eye when they're telling you this brand new, newfound success because they struggle with that intrapersonal relationship. Now... Neurodivergent workers, they're often highly skilled in various specialty areas. They leverage their strengths and they, they leverage their obsessions. You know, with, with nerds, there is a certain level of obsession. And when I say nerds, I, I, I do mean nerds and geeks and all of the other various words that used to be lobbed around the playground when we were all kids. So this is okay. This is fine. Many of them, many of them have embraced. I've embraced it. So look, uh, there's, there's those specialized skills because of the obsession. They know all of the ins and outs because they've studied it forwards and backwards. Also, there's a certain level of just change in the entire work dynamic because what happens is you're not looking at a number of people that are all lockstep in with each other going, this is the way to fix this. This is the way to fix it. When we start including somebody in who is on the spectrum or just a little bit eh, maladjusted to regular personal life, we start including in a certain level of diversity 
that allows people to come along and go, hey, let's move further. I want you to think of one of the biggest nerds. A lot of these different nerds, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, look at how they've arrived at where they're at. It hasn't been by thinking just the same way as everybody else. No, it's been by looking for those different little areas, those different little out-of-the-box thinking items where they go, this would be really cool. So along with all of this, bringing along all of these these folks, it does bring a, a stigma. And it does bring along some stuff that, it, you know, it, we've, we've got to smash. We've got to break through this. And yeah, okay, you know, there's there's Johnny over there, and he's a he's really weird, but you know what? He's he's brilliant at statistics. There's Mark over there. Yeah, he doesn't talk to anybody except through the computer. Yeah, but he types faster than anybody else, and he can debug code like nobody's business because he's got ADHD as well, and he's got that ability, he's got that talent to go through the code, and he can spot these small little errors identifying security vulnerabilities or whatever it is, and he's got that attention to detail. So there's a lot there. There's that fresh perspective that comes with with bringing along all of these Nerds, geeks, neurodivergent workers. You know what? Come alongside them. Encourage them. Be careful. You know, you, you, you don't want to you don't want to shatter their shell, but you know, make friends with them. You'd be amazed at what lurks inside those beautiful minds. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. The SIM card soon will be riding off into the sunset. In the span of just a decade, we went from flip phones and polyphonic ringtones to full-fledged mobile computers with quad-core processors and gigabytes of memory. While rapid advancements in computational power are of course nothing new, the evolution of mobile devices is something altogether different. With everything from their basic physical layout to the way the user interacts, with them having undergone dramatic changes in the intervening years. Even the network technology they use to facilitate voice and data communications are different. Yet, there's one component part that has not changed. The SIM card. Indeed, there's every reason to believe that very same card, now 20 years old, could be installed in almost any number of phones on the market today. Although in some units, minor surgery would be required to pare it down to size. Such is the beauty of the SIM card or subscriber identity module. It allows you to easily transfer your cellular service from one phone to another with little regard to the age or manufacturer of the device and generally without even having to inform your carrier of the swap. It's a simple concept that has served us well for almost as long as cellular telephones have existed and separates the phone from the phone contract. So naturally, there's mounting pressure in the industry, of course, to screw it up. With landline telephones, it was easy to figure out if the bill was paid. The carrier knew where each subscriber lived and they knew where the phones were installed. The homeowner 
either paid the bill or got service, or they were cut off. Even when the earliest mobile phones started hitting the market, their large size and high cost meant keeping track of who owned them wasn't too difficult. But as mobile phones became smaller, cheaper, and more widespread, it was clear some method of authentication would be required to prove the user had an active account. Since the physical location of the phone could no longer be used to determine who owned it and what number it should get, it would be necessary to give each mobile phone its own unique ID number. Further, since it was inevitable that the subscriber would eventually get a new mobile phone, it made sense to tie the information to some removable storage device so it could be moved between devices. Thus, the subscriber identity module was born. First introduced in 1991, the SIM card was actually envisioned as a way to carry the subscriber's entire digital life between devices. It featured enough storage capacity to hold the user's contact list and messages, which would be carried over to whatever new device the SIM was installed in. This concept has been all but abandoned today, as not only is the SIM storage capacity, which is less than 0.5 megabytes, but we now have the cloud to allow seamless syncing between devices. Modern SIMs are used almost exclusively to hold data necessary for network authentication. This consists primarily of the integrated circuit card identifier, also known as the ICCID, which is the SIM's own serial number and the subscriber's account number, officially known as the International Mobile Subscriber Identity, IMSI. The IMSI includes identifying codes for which country and network the card is to be used on, as well as the subscriber's phone number. In addition, the SIM contains a unique 128-bit authentication key that is checked against the carrier's database when the device attempts to join the network. Naturally, this is all an oversimplification. The first-generation SIM cards were the same dimensions of a credit card and generally were installed in car phones and other large portable telephones. By the time 2G cellular technology was mainstream, phones were much smaller and were using what at the time was called a mini-SIM. For many years, this second form was the de facto form of SIM to the point that most people think of it as the original. But ever-shrinking smartphones necessitated something even smaller. This led to the adoption of the micro-SIM in 2010, followed by the nano-SIM in 2012. Interestingly, the size of the SIM card was dictated by ISO IEC 7810, an international standard for the size and shape of identification cards rather than the internal electronics. Each version of the SIM has utilized essentially the same active components, just mounted to smaller and smaller PVC cards. This allows the larger cards to be cut down to fit devices which use the smaller forms, while the smaller versions can be used in older devices by way of an adapter. Understanding the design of the SIM card and its various forms, it's clear that the nano SIM is the end of the road. There's only enough of the PVC card material 
left to orient the chip in the holder. Any less, and you have to cut the chip itself, which could potentially break decades of backwards compatibility. So how do you make the SIM even smaller? Easy. You get rid of it. More and more phones today support what is known as an embedded SIM, that's eSIM, which, as the name implies, is built directly into the device. In practice, there's still a dedicated flash chip that holds the subscriber's information. The user just can't get to it. But for some devices, such as a smartwatch, even an eSIM might be too large. In that case, there's growing interest in integrated SIM, iSIM. With iSIM, the physical component is removed entirely. Instead, a sort of virtual SIM is integrated directly into the device's system on a chip. While most phones still offer nano-SIM compatibility, in addition to eSIM, the clock is ticking. Apple has already done away with physical SIM support as of the iPhone 14. And if history is any indicator, other manufacturers will soon follow. As of right now, iSIM is being marketed towards the wearables and Internet of Things devices. But it is not hard to predict that phone manufacturers will eventually be interested in the technology. With no physical SIM to remove, accessing and changing the data on the eSIM slash iSIM must be done through the device's own software. Naturally, this means that not only will it require the latest and greatest versions of your mobile operating system of choice, but that it's possible for your device manufacturer or even carrier to control your access to it. Just as some carriers disable the option to unlock the bootloader on Google's Pixel phones, one can imagine a future in which carriers will require you to go through them every time you move your eSIM to another device. In fact, there's some scenarios in which you'll almost certainly have to contact your carrier, bust up your current phone bad enough that you can't perform the self-serve eSIM swap. You'll need to get the carrier to do it remotely. Want to switch eSIM between iPhone and Android? You guessed it. Call the carrier and have them do it remotely. To be fair, there are some potential security benefits to eSIM slash iSIM. For one thing, you don't have to worry about somebody stealing the SIM from your phone or replacing it with another one while you aren't looking because it's not a physical object. Of course, that's right now. Who is to say a piece of malware couldn't be crafted down the line to extract the subscriber information from the hardware? In any event, it seems inevitable that the consumer won't have much say in the matter going forward. Sure, you can avoid buying a phone without a SIM card slot in 2023, 2024, and probably even 2025. But just as fewer and fewer phones each year still include a headphone jack, your options will eventually become limited. The day is coming when you have to bid your trusty SIM card goodbye, and that's a shame, as your SIM card rides off into the sunset. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. (laughs) 
Yes. That's the voice of Marty Winston who joins me now. And Marty, you know, we were talking a while back, uh, however many weeks ago it was, in regards to you moved all of your tools to to not, a whole... Not all the tools. All of their battery chargers. All the ba- Just the battery chargers? Oh, my. <laughs> all the battery chargers to, to a server rack... Yeah, seven foot tall server rack, right? Which and is which is always great. That's that's great. Well, use of you space. know, you got the shelves and you got power distribution units. It makes yeah. it all so easy. <laughs> the whole thing goes into one plug. And how Boom. much? Yeah. How much you're going to simultaneously draw, even if you have thirty different chargers? Yeah, yeah. So I uh, I understand you. You added a new organizer. You were oh, mentioning yes, this. I okay. Did. <laughs> Tell me about this. It's a Vivor. That's V-E-V-O-R, a Vivor wall-mounted power tool organizer. Okay. It's it's wood. It's got slots on the bottom side that are a lot like those stemware glass racks you've seen where you slide the, the, the stem of the glass in. Sure. And okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, in this case, you can either put the handle of the tool there with the tool body above, or you can flip it upside down, slide the battery plate into the slot, and the tool hangs below. Okay. I've done where it fits, rigid doesn't fit, but where it fits, <laughs> <laughs> where it fits, I can usually get two tools in, one pointing forward and one pointed back. This whole assembly is mounted on two aluminum utility rails that are mounted on the side of the steel rack. Okay. The, you, you could chin on this thing. I mean, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah, maybe wood, you could, but I, I, my weight, yeah. I'm not going to be doing chin ups. <laughs> you do if it's tiptoes and nobody's looking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this comes as a kit. You have to assemble it. The boards are pre drilled with okay. either through holes for where screws go through or starter holes where the screws coming through go into the next piece. Mm-hmm, and in several mm-hmm. places, the spacing between the through holes isn't quite the same as the spacing to their mating starter holes. Now, I'm not new at this, but I still saw the screws erupt from the mating pieces twice, coming out the side and splintering it. Mm, Uh, In one case, it was a holder that I didn't want there anyway, so I just took it off. In the other case, it was a back corner, and by finding a shorter, thinner wood screw and forcing a shift in angle, I was able to relax the split area enough to be be okay. Okay. once you build it, these things are extremely useful. The model they sent me hangs just nominally one per slot, five power tools. Gives okay. me some shelf space for whatever else. Uh, best way to find these Vivor tool organizers is on their own website, vevor.com. Nice. All right. No. And this this kind of goes, it, 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 this is a needed organization thing. I, I, oh, I, hell. I, I, <laughs> oh, heck yeah. <laughs> uh, also got re-idea all electric candle lighters. Now, these don't use gas at all. They okay. use Marconi. <laughs> they use a spark cap. Okay. All right. So, so like, um, like a stun gun kind of thing. I think I've seen uh, yeah, those. Not yeah, not quite okay. that big. They're all long bodies with a USB charging port at one end and a power switch at that end. In mm-hmm. mid body, yeah. there's a slider to actuate, it, and when it does, the two little electrodes slide out, and the spark jumps between them when they get out far enough. That spark gap, I've tested on a lot of stuff. Any candle wick I put in there is lit almost immediately. Do not try it on a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> Fireworks. I want to remind you, the Fi- Model uh, T 
to make a high voltage happen, the sure. Model T used a buzzer and a step-up transformer. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that was its ignition voltage. Mm -hmm. uh, it's mm -hmm. also been used in a number of man traps. A taser uses the same kind of boosted voltage to shock its target. So why not a candle wick? Okay. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. The idea brought the, that idea into a line of slender little devices. They're all very kind of classy looking. Uh, if you got US, they come with short USB charging cables. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, keep the kids away from them. But the all electric re-idea candlelighters, a matchless response to that Old Testament command, let there be light. Matchless. Oh, my. <laughs> I, I love some of the puns you use. Now, OK, so uh, what is their website? I mean, how do you spell this? I mean, you R -E -I -D -E -A. R -E -I R-E-I-D-E-A. R-E-I and then idea. Re-idea. OK. All right. I'll, I'll check that one out. And the other one was Vivor. Yeah. V-E-V-O-R different kind of names there but we're running out of like practical names you know uh, that it's everybody across the industry is just having to invent new names uh, you're absolutely right bn bn <laughs> <laughs> oh man so i what do we have to look forward to what what's some of the upcoming segments you've got planned for me Oh, you don't. We, there is such a list. But one of the things that I hope to have, we probably won't be able to cover this till late summer. Yeah. Is a battery operated heated lunchbox. Wait, wait, wait. A battery operated heated lunchbox. I, I, I'm just trying to wrap my brain around this. I, I mean, okay, so your your sandwich will stay hot. I, I mean, well, would lasagna stay hot? Uh, I think so. Wait, I mean, wait, I haven't you're tested gonna have to it yet. Find it out, yeah. Number one, they haven't sent it yet. Number two, I haven't made the lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements: Computer Club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, April the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. And the topic of presentation are lightning talks, which are short talks, how to create a talking avatar, classic games on an Android phone, two-factor authentication, and radio garden. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, Website is nyacc.org. Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, April the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is limac.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a presentation. Podcast for and by you. What, why, and how. Thursday, April the 27th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is bcug.com. Tech Connect, formerly the Westchester PC Users Group, meets Thursday, May the 4th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, May the 5th. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. 
Website is acgnj.org. Kingsbite Computer Club meets Tuesday, May the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. at the Park Plaza Restaurant at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. To confirm, the number is 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN Live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.